Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. My name is Pradeep Kumar. And my name is Rahul Demania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Today's episode is dedicated to critical illness in children with hematopoietic stem cell transplants. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Muna Khayed, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Emory University School of Medicine, Atlanta, Georgia. She's also the director of the Blood and Marrow Transplant Program at the AFLAC Cancer and Blood Disorder Centers at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. I will now turn it over to Rahul for a patient case. A 10-year-old female with refractory high-risk ALL, status post-mismatched unrelated donor transplantation, T plus 13 days, presents as a transfer to the PICU with abdominal distension, worsening jaundice, and escalating nasal cannula requirements. The patient's post-transplant course was complicated by gram-negative bacteremia requiring fluid resuscitation, and a chest X-ray on transfer to the PICU is notable for bilateral airspace disease, a right-sided pleural effusion, and hypoexpanded lung fields. The patient is promptly intubated, sedated, and started on renal replacement therapy. Echo, labs, and further imaging are pending. Dr. Gaia, welcome to PICU Doc on Call. Thank you, Rahul and Pradeep, for having me. I have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. We are so excited to focus on critically ill children in the PICU who have undergone bone marrow transplantation. We will focus our discussion today on indications and the general process of bone marrow transplant, which we will refer to as BMT, and then transition to specific scenarios relevant to the pediatric critical care setting. Dr. Kayed, what are the classic pediatric indications for BMT? Autologous transplant, where donor cells are from the patient or the recipient themselves, is used as consolidation in some solid tumors such as high-risk neuroblastoma, brain tumors like medulloblastoma, and germ cell tumors, and are the standard treatment approach in relapsed Hodgkin's lymphoma. Allogeneic BMT, where the donor cells are derived from another individual, are typically used for hematologic malignancies, ALL, and AML are the most common pediatric indications. Also, in pediatrics specifically, allogeneic BMT is used for a wide spectrum of non-malignant hematology conditions, such as hemoglobinopathies, sickle cell disease and thalassemia, severe aplastic anemia, inherited bone marrow failure syndromes, as well as some metabolic disorders and immune deficiency disorders, such as SCID, HLH, and other primary immune regulatory disorders. It seems like there are many applications for pediatric hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, which are not just limited to oncological diagnoses. As we have highlighted some important vocabulary terms, can you tell us a little bit more about the sources of graft in BMT? So Rahul, this is very important. And when you guys receive a patient in the ICU who is transferred, it is important to know what kind of transplant they received and place them in their transplant timing. So if we want to break it down, stem cells, which give rise to different types of blood cells, red cells, white cells, and platelets, are derived from the bone marrow. Thus, the overall process or common terminology is bone marrow transplant. Now, stem cells can also be derived from the 
peripheral blood when the donor is treated with granulocyte colony stimulating factor or GCSF. And in that case, it's a peripheral blood stem cell transplant. There are some key advantages here, which include the ability to collect a much higher stem cell dose with faster hematopoietic recovery. On the other hand, a higher T-cell content in peripheral blood stem cell grafts can subsequently cause an increase in risk of graft-versus-host disease, so it's a balance. Umbilical cord blood is also used as a source of stem cells. The dose of uh, stem cells that we obtain is in part dictated by the primary disorder, where with a higher risk of rejection, we want to obtain a higher cell dose, the type of chemotherapy we use, and the type of donor we have. Dr. Kayed, can you comment briefly on human leukocyte antigen, or HLA, and its role in BMT? The major histocompatibility complex, or MHC system, in humans is known as HLA and is located on the short arm of chromosome 6 and contains the most polymorphic gene cluster in the entire human genome. The HLA consists of regions are called classes. Class 1 and class 2 are relevant to stem cell transplant. The main function of HLA class 1 gene products, which are HLA-A, B, and C, is to present endogenous peptides to responding CD8-positive T cells. HLA class 1 antigens are expressed on all nucleated cells and platelets. While HLA class 2 molecules, HLA-DR, DP, and DQ, are restricted expression and process exogenous peptides for presentation to CD4-positive helper T cells, these are expressed on antigen-presenting cells. HLA-A, B, C, and DR-beta-1 are traditionally the loci critical for matching for stem cell donor. In addition to deciding on the source of the graft, we have to make decisions on who the donor will be. If a matched sibling donor is not available, or in some inherited conditions that may not be an appropriate option as a donor, then matched unrelated donors or matched cord blood units can be appropriate. However, if that is also not an option, then considerations are made for mismatched unrelated donors or haploidentical related donors. The type of donor and the degree of the match dictates the type of graft-versus-host disease prevention that we will use, and that also dictates further immune suppression. I think the summary for our listeners is that the HLA matching is key. HLA, A, B, C, and D especially are critical for matching stem cell donor, and an optimal match is important in order to optimize outcome as well as downstream complications. Dr. Gayed, how can we best conceptualize the bone marrow transplant procedure itself? So Rahul, this is very important. When we are conceptualizing a patient going through transplant, you have to take into account their donor, their underlying disease, and that in turn plays into the choice for the conditioning or preparative regimen. Here, chemotherapy alone or combined with radiation is used. It can be used to eradicate disease in malignant disorders. It also provides immune suppression in the allogeneic transplant setting to overcome host rejection of the new graft, and it also creates space in the bone marrow for the new graft, what we call myeloablation. Depending on the primary disease that the patient is undergoing transplant for, then preparative regimens may be heavy on the myeloablation or heavy on the immune suppression component of the preparative regimen. Then stem cell harvesting, collection, or cryopreservation 
either stem cells are either harvested from the bone marrow itself or from peripheral blood after mobilization with GCSF through an apheresis procedure. The graft can be fresh, such as a bone marrow graft harvested on the same day or a day before the infusion, or cryopreserved and then thawed just prior to infusion, such as an autologous peripheral blood stem cell graft or a cord blood unit. Stem cell infusion is a key day in transplant. The day of infusion is usually considered as day zero. Stem cells obtained are infused via central line to the patient, and reactions there can be similar to transfusion or allergic reactions, or if the graft is cryopreserved, then additional allergic type reactions. A key term we always use is engraftment. That's the time until neutrophil count recovery. That can be up to three to four weeks, depending on the type of graft. Patients undergoing an allogeneic donor transplant are usually hospitalized for a period of five to six weeks. The stay is slightly shorter for autologous transplant. During that period, complications include nutrition, supplementation, pain management, transfusions, and treatment of infections. To summarize, after careful graft selection, ablating the patient's native bone marrow to allow for a new graft, considering Acute reactions is key. Remember the nomenclature day zero is the stem cell infusion day, and each day thereafter is generally denoted as T plus day number. Dr. Kayad, let's transition to the critical care setting. What are some of the complications the pediatric intensivist needs to watch for in patients with BMT? So, critical illness in BMT patients can result from either the primary disease process the malignancy, the underlying immune deficiency, immune suppression from the preparative regimen, including risk for opportunistic infection, organ toxicity from the conditioning regimen, as well as graft versus host disease and its treatment. Using the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research data, in the first 100 days post-transplant, in patients under the age of 18, mortality related to infection Organ failure and graft versus host disease can represent two thirds of deaths. Whereas after day 100, the primary cause of death is usually related to the primary disease. One study by Zinter et al. reported an overall mortality in the PICU of 17.4%. This was higher in patients receiving mechanical ventilation, which can go up to 44%, and higher in patients needing renal replacement, up to 56%, and patients requiring ECMO with a mortality of around 77%. Another study published in 2018 by Rowan et al. reported that the use of uh, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation early was associated with improved survival compared to late late implementation, and the subjects had an outcome similar to those treated only with conventional mechanical ventilation. A more recent study by Rowan et al. published in 2021 identified risk factors which predicted non-invasive positive pressure ventilation failure. These included the respiratory rate of over 40 at 4 hours and the use of a vasoactive. Presence of these risk factors resulted in a failure rate of 63% of NIPPV, and this was independent of age and oxygen use. This was in a cohort of around 100 patients that are purely pediatric. This was retrospective, however informative to some future practices. It is not surprising that as higher levels of therapy are required in the PICU setting, mortality rate increases in these patients. An important concept to highlight here is the use of mechanical ventilation. 
these patients already have a tenuous clinical state and limited physiologic reserve. Thus, finding the optimal window for intubation is key. Dr. Kayed, can you comment on the timeline of complications in patients with BMT? So Rahul, everything we've talked about up till now, the type of graft, the type of conditioning, day zero, these are all very important um, pieces of data that the intensivist needs to take into account. Then you place the patient in their risk period post-transplantation. In the first 30 days, bacterial and fungal aspergillus candida, as well as viral infections such as HSV, are at the highest risks. Then we'll often divide the, tr- the period after that of up to day 100. These patients are at risk of CMV viremia and subsequent CMV disease, EBV, adenovirus, and others such as BK virus, HHV6, etc. And after that, patients, especially in the setting of graft versus host disease, are at risk of aspergillus, encapsulated bacterial infection, and VZV reactivation. Organ dysfunction can also follow a timeline. For example, Hepatic veno-occlusive disease is often seen in the first two to three weeks after BMT. Cytokine release and engraftment syndrome can occur as counts are recovering. Acute grafts versus host disease usually happens in the first 100 days, and chronic GVHD often after 100 days. Importantly, as immune reconstitution is delayed, depending on the disease and the transplant characteristics, this timeline can be skewed. So communication with the transplant team as to where the patient is along the spectrum can help the ICU team in assessing risks and clinical symptoms. I really liked how you highlighted the multidisciplinary approach. Let's summarize the three important timelines. One month, i.e. 30 days, and about three months, i.e. around 100 days, as well as the engraftment period itself. Dr. Kayed, let's go through some common non-infectious reasons a patient with BMD is admitted to the PICU. Can you shed some light on engraftment syndrome? So engraftment syndrome typically precedes engraftment or count recovery. Risk factors can include the use of granulocyte colony stimulating factor, which can produce a more robust or fast recovery of counts. The data are conflicting about whether engraftment syndrome is associated with a higher non-relapse mortality. The pathophysiology of engraftment syndrome is also unclear, but it usually involves endothelial injury and activated granulocytes in the setting of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Engraftment syndrome can be self-limited, but responds to steroids. It is sometimes hard to distinguish engraftment syndrome from acute GVHD, and often the clear line is drawn retrospectively. Patients usually present with a rash, fever, increased weight gain, pulmonary edema, liver and renal dysfunction, as well as encephalopathy. Mild cases may not need therapy, but steroids can be used and usually result in improvement. It is a diagnosis of exclusion. We need to make sure that there is no concurrent infection also responsible for these symptoms. Importantly, as there is, a, there is an element of capillary leak here, when a patient does get sick and gets transferred to the ICU, um, attention to fluid balance is key. Dr. Kaya, thank you so much for highlighting the systemic response and the various downstream complications. Let's go ahead and tailor our discussion to more focused organ systems. Can you shed some light on early pulmonary complications? 
So early non-infectious complications of the lungs post-transplant include idiopathic pneumonia syndrome and, fortunately, less commonly, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. Idiopathic pneumonia syndrome is seen in up to 12% of BMT patients. It is described as non-infectious lung injury and associated with a high mortality. It's usually seen in the first six to seven weeks post-transplantation, so after count recovery, Patients exhibit lung injury seen on x-ray as bilateral lung disease and present with symptoms of pneumonia, cough, dyspnea, abnormal lung function, and absence of infection. Although ongoing research does show that a certain percentage of these patients in BAL fluids actually end up having HHV6, rhinovirus, aspergillus, and even CMV. GVHD may be associated with IPS, although histopathology of IPS is slightly different. Besides steroids, etanercept, a TNF blocker, has had impressive response rates in, with resulting weaning off supplemental oxygen and improved survival. So early recognition, ruling out infection, and early intervention is very important in this clinical condition. The second condition to highlight is diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. This is commonly seen early post-transplant and can be non-infectious in nature typically seen in patients with mucopolysaccharidosis who end up being at high risk. Patients will present with fever, respiratory distress, and hemoptysis, and acute pulmonary deterioration. Interventions include steroids to decrease the inflammation, mechanical ventilation with high PEEP, correction of coagulopathy and platelet replacement, recombinant activated factor 7, aminocaproic acid, tranexamic acid have also been used. Diffuse alveolar hemorrhage has a very poor prognosis. Finally, I would like to mention bronchiolitis obliterans and bronchiolitis obliterans organizing pneumonia as seen as late complications post-BMT. Bronchiolitis obliterans is associated with chronic GVHD, so usually seen in the latter half of the first year of transplant. Bronchiolitis obliterans organizing pneumonia is usually seen slightly earlier, two to six months post-transplantation. In both of these conditions, Bronchoalveolar lavage does not reveal any infectious complications, and the treatment is usually steroids. Okay, so here's the summary for our listeners. Idiopathic pneumonia syndrome, watch for signs of respiratory failure and pneumonia. Diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, watch for hemoptysis. And bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome, as well as bronchiolitis obliterans organizing pneumonitis, watch for pneumonia-like symptoms on a protracted timeline. Dr. Kayed, switching gears away from pulmonary complications, can you tell us more about sinusoidal obstructive syndrome or veno-occlusive disease? So SOS, or VOD, happened due to endothelial injury of the sinusoids of the liver, primarily affecting the venules. Incidence can be as high as 50%, depending on the type of transplant, the intensity of the conditioning regimen, and the primary diagnosis. The mortality can be low, but can be as high as 67%, depending on the severity and the presence of organ dysfunction, mainly pulmonary and renal. Clinically, patients present with hyperbilirubinemia, usually with a bilirubin of more than 2 mg per deciliter, painful hepatomegaly, and fluid retention with weight gain of over 5% from baseline. VOD typically occurs in the first two to three weeks after transplantation. Typically, most patients start to present toward the, first, the end of the first week, the beginning of the second week after day zero, 
and severe VOD can present with multi-organ failure with involvement of the lungs, the heart, and mental status changes. Reversal of portal flow on ultrasound is a late finding and is not required for diagnosis. And again, another point related to children is that they can present with anecteric VOD without the presence of hyperbilirubinemia, and it's important not to miss the diagnosis because of that feature not being present. Risk factors include type of regimen, myeloablative regimen, the use, use of radiation, age, older patients are at risk compared to younger patients, increased transaminitis before transplantation, pointing to a liver insult or injury prior to transplant, the use of transplant in the second transplant setting, and certain prior treatments for leukemia, such as the use of inotuzumab. Defibrotide is now FDA-approved for the treatment of VOD with organ dysfunction. Hypothetical risk of bleeding with defibrotide is present, and for this, we maintain a higher platelet count. We monitor PT and PTT and fibrinogen and replace as needed. Supportive care is essential, including restriction of fluids, the use of diuretics, or early use of renal replacement therapy. If there is respiratory distress or um, because of either pleural effusion or um, ascites, then paracentesis is indicated. An infection should be treated after cultures, and ursodeoxycholic acid is often used for prophylaxis and continued for treatment. There are ongoing studies for the use of defibrotide as prophylaxis in patients in high-risk settings. Key takeaways from this section, trend your liver function tests as well as bilirubin, monitor daily weights, and consider defibrotide as an agent, which is thought to enhance the enzymatic activity of plasmin to hydrolyze fibrin clots in patients with venoocclusive disease. Dr. Gaia, can you tell us about transplant-associated thrombotic microangiopathy, or TMA? So TMA is increasingly recognized as a complication of bone marrow transplant. It's closely associated with other toxicities, such as GVHD and infections. TMA should be suspected in any BMT patient presenting with hypertension that is not controlled, hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia out of context for the timing post-transplant, proteinuria, along with other system involvement such as renal failure, pleural and pericardial effusions, as well as neurological changes. Lab findings include elevated LDH, proteinuria, thrombocytopenia, anemia, and elevated soluble C5B9 complex levels. Usually, TMA is treated with eculizumab, which blocks the formation of the soluble C5B9 complex. TMA results from endothelial damage from either high-dose chemotherapy, radiation, the use of calcineurin inhibitors, cytokine production in acute GVHD, ongoing infections, and others. Dr. Kayed, in our patient case, the patient was progressively becoming altered. What are the acute neurologic complications pediatric intensivists should be concerned about in BMT patients admitted to the PICU? Any BMT patient who presents with altered mental status needs imaging to look for hemorrhage, any signs of infection, and once stable, needs a lumbar puncture for infection workup. Complications can be drug-related, such as calcineurin inhibitors and posterior reversible encephalopathy, infectious, such as fungal, toxoplasma, viral, such as HHV6, HSV, and others, related to metabolic derangements, cerebrovascular complications, such as hemorrhage or TMA-related complications, 
immune-mediated, and that usually happens in chronic GVHD as a sign of immune dysregulation, such as myasthenia gravis and diffuse myositis. Seizures can happen post-transplantation due to a multitude of causes, including the use of calcineurin inhibitors in the presence of lower magnesium levels, which can lower seizure thresholds, as well as early in the preparatory regimen with the use of busulfan. Leukoencephalopathy can result from cranial radiation that, on top of a previous history of heavy intrathecal chemotherapy exposure, this can present with dysarthria, ataxia, dysphagia, and an altered mental status. Usually, an MRI will show white matter changes. Posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, or PRESS, which we mentioned before, presents as headache, altered mental status, visual disturbances, and seizures, and does not usually present with all these symptoms at the same time. Posterior region of the brain usually shows cortical vasogenic edema on MRI, and that is usually a diagnostic feature. Use of cyclosporin or tacrolimus is associated with PRESS. Treatment is usually supportive with the control of blood pressure, management of seizures, and usually results in a change of immune suppression to a different agent. Especially at risk are patients undergoing transplant for sickle cell disease due to prior vasculopathy. And in these patients, usually we pay special attention to control of blood pressure, special attention to maintaining normal magnesium levels in the blood. Dr. Gaia, what about infectious complications in BMT patients? So patients post-transplant are extremely immune suppressed and are at risk for a variety of infections. In the first month, the majority of infections are bacterial, usually enteric gram-negative bacteria from translocation from the gut, and then usually staphylococcus or streptococcus as skin or oral organisms. Fungal infections, usually candida and aspergillus, are common. The infections can be localized or systemic, so beware the black localized bruise that does not resolve in an acutely sick patient who is very severely immune-compromised. These usually benefit from a skin biopsy to make sure it's not a localized mold infection. Aspergillus infections usually are at increased risk with the use of steroids, with neutropenia, and with concurrent GBHD. Patients typically present with respiratory illness, prolonged fever, and dyspnea. Patients especially at risk for aspergillus infections include patients who are on steroids, patients with prolonged neutropenia, and patients with ongoing GVHD, which is in itself is an immune dysregulation and immune deficiency. Patients typically present with respiratory illness, including cough, hemoptysis, and dyspnea, prolonged fevers. For diagnosis, usually aspergillus antigen has a high sensitivity and specificity. Beta-D-glucan has less sensitivity but more specificity. The most important treatment is prophylaxis. Patients receive antifungal prophylaxis, usually with fluconazole for low risk, voriconazole or posiconazole for high risk situations, such as unrelated donor transplantations, if a patient has a diagnosis of GVHD, is on steroids, or received T cell depletion with expected delay in immune reconstitution. Viral infections, again, are common post-transplantation. Cytomegalovirus, or CMV, usually can occur in the first three months post-transplantation. It is usually dormant in the donor or the recipient and get, get reactivated. CMV reactivation is relatively common after transplantation. However, thankfully, CMV disease, such as interstitial pneumonia, which has a high mortality rate of 80%, CMV enteritis, retinitis, or even bone marrow suppression is less common 
And that is because of the preemptive monitoring of CMV and preemptive treatment with agents such as gencyclovir, foscarnet, or valgencyclovir prior to the development of CMV organ disease. In patients with diarrhea post-BMT, CMV enteritis can be difficult to distinguish clinically from acute GVHD. This can be an indication for obtaining GI biopsies for cultures and viral stains. Other viruses such as adenovirus, EBV, BK virus, HHV6, VZV, and human metanumovirus can also occur. New therapies, including virus-specific T-cells from seropositive donors that are expanded in the lab, have been transformative in gaining control of some of these infections. It is very important to consider viral, bacterial, and fungal coverage in tailoring your antimicrobial therapy in these patients. Dr. Kayed, we typically worry about graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, in patients with BMT. Can you comment on key GVHD correlations to the intensive care setting? So graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, is mediated by donor T-cells against host antigens. Acute GVHD usually happens in the first two to three months after transplantation. It can happen late, though, with delayed immune reconstitution. Acute GVHD usually presents with a skin rash that is usually erythematous, maculopapular, diarrhea, or involvement of the liver with increased jaundice. GVHD itself can happen in up to 50% of transplant recipients. The severity is a range. Mild GVHD can present with skin-only manifestations. Severe GVHD can present with severe diarrhea, abdominal cramping, GI bleeding, and severe liver involvement. Chronic GVHD is a very different clinical picture. It can impact any organ and usually happens after day 100, usually towards the latter half of the first year. Again, the timeline of acute and chronic GVHD can differ depending on immune suppression and the type of transplant. Late acute GVHD after day 100 can occur less commonly. Early chronic GVHD before day 100 can also occur. So it is important to discuss these clinical pictures with the transplant physician collaborating with you in the care of the patient. It is again also very important not to miss the occurrence of acute GVHD in a critically ill patient. Oftentimes, acute inflammation, such as a new infection, a new viral reactivation, can further prompt inflammation, activation of T-cells, and prompt a GVHD flare. Thus, it's important not to miss the new-onset diarrhea or a less obvious skin rash in a patient who is critically ill. In summary for this section, we talked about key features of BMT diagnoses related to ICU level of care, namely VOD, transplant-associated microangiopathy, and GVHD. It is important to correlate these specific entities with fundamentals of pediatric critical care related to airway, fluid balance, and hemodynamic status. Dr. Kayed, we appreciate your insights on today's podcast. And as we wrap up, would you mind highlighting your personal clinical pearls? Thank you, Rahul. A multidisciplinary team approach is required for optimal outcomes in these patients, including combined rounds with the family, the BMT team, and the ICU team. A high index of suspicion for rapid deterioration is required for patients post-BMT admitted to the ICU. Obtain blood cultures, start broad-spectrum antibiotics, 
Fever is not required nor expected depending on the degree of immune suppression. And thus, waiting for a fever as a sign of infection can result in missed opportunities. Attention to fluid balance is very important. The majority of the conditions we discussed are associated with capillary leak. Discussion between the ICU and the BMT pharmacists is also very essential. Many, many medications used in BMT have serious drug interactions. Examples are sirolimus, calcineurin inhibitors, and azoles. To summarize today's episode, patients with BMT can be admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit either due to complications of a preparatory regimen, immunosuppression, adverse effects of medications or chemotherapy, fluid overload, and even relapse of primary disease. A high vigilance is needed in early recognition and management of these children. This concludes our episode today on pediatric bone marrow transplant. We thank Dr. Muna Kayat for her expertise on this topic. We hope you found value in this short podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Please stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.